listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern, your host. I've got Dr. Roland Horn from uh, Stanford that works at the Door School of Sustainability. Uh, he has done groundbreaking research in the study of geothermal energy and fracking as well. Uh, was watching a video that uh, Dr. Horn had been doing on trilemma between energy, ecology, and economy. And I think this aptly sums up the place where humanity is sitting as it has a vast energy usage and every government and most people want expanding economic opportunities. And there are enormous environmental costs with obtaining energy uh, with all the current energy production methods. So I'm looking forward to talking with uh, Professor Roland Horn about uh, which sources of energy yield the most energy for the economy with the least amount of adverse environmental impact. Obviously, we're going to first focus on geothermal energy, as that's Dr. Horn's area of specialty. Um, I was noting that uh, looking in Bill Gates's book, uh, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, and in the in the book, there were only a few mentions of geothermal, and he thought it would play a very modest role in energy production going forward. I looked in John Doerr's book, uh, and uh, he he also had mentioned geothermal in passing, but he didn't make it a focal point of his uh, global action plan for solving our climate crisis now. Uh, in Greta Thunberg's book, The Climate Book, she briefly mentions geothermal, saying it's a low-carbon energy source uh, and 17%, admits 17% as much uh, as compared to fossil gas, but geothermal also produces other emissions like hydrogen sulfide and sulfur dioxide. So uh, welcome to the program, Dr. Horn. Uh, glad to have you on here and just uh, wanted to kind of get your thoughts on where you think geothermal's role plays in uh, in solving our climate problems going forward. And are all these experts a little off base and kind of poo-pooing geothermal? <laughs> well, yeah, so thank you for inviting me. So I'm happy to be here to talk about geothermal. And you're completely right in the summary that you've just made that uh, geothermal is kind of below a lot of people's radar you know, I often describe geothermal as the underground energy source because that's where it is physically. Plus, you know, people don't seem to pay much attention to it. It is true that the current output of geothermal worldwide is relatively modest. I mean, as of today, uh, the geothermal output is equivalent to about three days of uh, oil production is currently being saved by the use of geothermal energy, both in the form of electricity and direct heat, um, which is a relatively modest amount worldwide. However, one of the characteristics of the people you mentioned is that they live in places that don't use geothermal energy very much. So the state of California, where I am currently, generates 6% of its electricity from geothermal sources. State of Nevada, next to us, produces 10% of their electricity from geothermal sources. Uh, New Zealand produces about 22% of its electricity from geothermal sources. And the nation of Iceland 
produces two-thirds of all of its primary energy from geothermal. And there are another, there are several other examples too, like Philippines um, and Kenya and other places. So in, in certain locations in the world which are geologically advantageous, geothermal is a very important uh, source of energy. And it differs importantly from some of the other sources that you mentioned, like solar and wind, in that it doesn't have intermittency. Geothermal is sort of solid all of the time. It runs 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. It's one of its important characteristics. And therefore, it's a direct substitute in some circumstances for fossil fuels where uh, intermittent sources have to have some um, backup of some kind. And let me stress that I, I don't wish to claim that there's any kind of winner in this competition. I think the point, the principal point is that meeting climate change uh, is going to require a complete portfolio of energy sources, of which geothermal is an important one because of its baseload characteristic. I guess one question I have for you in terms of where you see it could be if it was more fully developed what percentage of the the pie could geothermal make up if we were to um, put a lot more in the way of resources in that direction? And then I guess the question is, is that a uh, wise move to for us to make given its, um, its emissions of other um, things like hydrogen sulfide and sulfur dioxide? Well, let me say, first of all, that is actually wrong. <laughs> so there is hydrogen sulfide and CO2 in, in to some amount in geothermal resources. However, um, geothermal electricity has been inventoried to have the lowest life cycle carbon emission of any of the uh, sources of electricity Actually, nuclear, wind, and geothermal are the three lowest, uh, and they are 40 to 50 times less carbon emissions than, for example, uh, natural gas, and even less than coal. Um, sulfur dioxide, simply, that's wrong. Sulfur dioxide is a very reactive gas, and it actually is not emitted from geothermal sources. Well, I guess we'll have to submit a correction to uh, the climate book by Greta Thunberg. Uh, hydrogen sulfide is present. However, you know, here in California, we have very stringent regulations on hydrogen sulfide emissions, and therefore the power plants have scrubbers that actually remove the hydrogen sulfide uh, quite effectively, so there's no actual emissions of it. And they turn it basically into elemental sulfur which then gets distributed to the uh, wineries around Napa Valley, which is where the principal geothermal source is, the geysers here in California, and they use it for fertilizer. So uh, it's a useful byproduct. It doesn't, doesn't leave the power plant in the form of hydrogen sulfide. It leaves it in the form of sulfur after the equipment has taken care of it. So, so in terms of... Um, Going back to the question of how do you think it could be developed? And obviously there's a certain question mark here in terms of because you're drilling for geothermal uh, heat, you can hit some dry holes. Um, what's your best estimate as to 
what percentage of the world energy needs could geothermal meet if it was uh, fully developed or more fully developed? Yeah, so I, I listed some countries which have large fractions. The characteristic of those countries are that they are geologically advantageous. They have sort of suitable conditions for geothermal. Um, and I, I told you the percentage, 6%, 10%, 22%, 60%. So what we want to achieve, what the world would like to achieve, could usefully achieve, is to get up into those kind of percentages more broadly in the places that are less geologically advantageous. And in 2006, the U.S. Department of Energy did a study uh, looking to answer exactly the question you just asked, you know, what could we get nationwide? Where, you know, how much of our energy could we get from geothermal? And they concluded that it was achievable to reach 6% nationwide, uh, which is the percentage that we enjoy here in California. So at least in the United States, making use of enhanced geothermal systems, that 2006 MIT report concluded that it, it was achievable nationwide to get to 6%. Well, I guess the question is, uh, what has what has been done in the last uh, few years in particular to increase that percentage? Uh, has the, uh, the Biden administration put any funds into pushing geothermal out? Uh, they have indeed. So actually, um, we now have an increased research budget for geothermal in the United States, uh, but actually it's been increasing since that 2006 study, actually. And the investment that the U.S. government has been making in geothermal has been to um, accelerate the development of enhanced geothermal systems. Okay, well, it's good to hear that we're studying it more, but I think uh, we probably need to get into the implementation phase uh, fairly quickly, though obviously there are potential impacts uh, for implementing uh, any type of new energy source. And uh, we'll be back in just a minute to talk to uh, Dr. Horn about those potential um, climate externalities, if you will, that are environmental issues that can result from doing something even as clean as geothermal. So uh, stay tuned. listening to a climate change. This is Matt Matter and your host. I've got Dr. Roland Horn on the program from Stanford School. Uh, I mean, stamp from Stanford, the Door School of Sustainability. And uh, Dr. Horn, right before the break, we were talking about uh, what the Biden administration has done uh, and the U.S. government encouraging the study of geothermal. What have they done regarding the implementation and getting actual wells being drilled and more energy being produced geothermal-wise? So the U.S. government is not doing that directly. However, what they have attempted to do, I think with some success, is to create an environment in which commercial entities can actually go ahead and do that. 
So what we have seen in the last uh, six, seven years or so, even before, 10 years, uh, has been the creation of uh, companies who are endeavoring to develop enhanced geothermal systems basically as profit-making ventures. So this is the industrial kind of uh, ramp-up of enhanced geothermal systems. There has been, of course, an active geothermal industry in the United States for probably 50 years uh, for conventional geothermal systems, but the enhanced geothermal systems, which is kind of the leading edge, is now starting to see commercial entities entering the market as well. So how would you define an, an enhanced uh, geothermal uh, activity? So earlier on, I talked about places that are geologically advantageous, and those are places which have hot rock close to the surface, usually associated with volcanism, although not always, um, as well as fractures that allow for hot water and steam to flow easily through those hot rocks and carry the energy to the surface. So, so those are the good places, and, and we have a lot of them here in California and Iceland and other places. However, there are other um, good but not as good places where the rock is hot but not very permeable, and that means that you don't have a mechanism to recover that heat because you can't get the water to go through the rocks. And in that circumstance, the process enhances the permeability of the rocks using uh, hydraulic fracturing to allow for the fluids to pass through and, and thereby create a commercial geothermal system where previously it was sub-commercial because the permeability was insufficient. And I guess then the question is, um, uh, what is the potential consequence of, of fracking these rock structures and the potential you know, downsides of doing that? Well, let me make sure we don't confuse uh, fracturing that we're accustomed to from oil and gas with fracturing in geothermal. So in geothermal, for example, we don't refer to it as fracking, it's referred to as hydroshearing. And actually there is a fundamental mechanistic difference between the two, um, that the kind of rocks that are being fractured in geothermal are also rather different in that they're brittle volcanic rocks compared to sedimentary rocks that are fractured in oil and gas. So in uh, sedimentary formations that we, we see in shale oil and shale gas, they're producing mode one fractures, which are tensile fractures, basically splitting the rock apart. Whereas in geothermal, the water which is injected to stimulate the reservoir basically causes the rocks in natural fractures to slide past each other in a shearing process, and in doing so in, enhances their permeability. So there's some significant differences between the, the processes. There are some there are some downsides to doing it, uh, even in geothermal. One of them is the potential for induced seismicity. So that's a that's a problem which is the focus of research: how to ameliorate uh, induced seismicity in geothermal shearing. Um, but that's an issue that is needs to be addressed. 
I'm assuming that uh, when you say induced seismicity, seismicity, you're referring to earthquakes uh, being caused by this process. Right. So earthquakes is kind of a strong term. When people think about earthquakes, they think about buildings falling down. But, I mean, the earth beneath our feet is seismically active all the time, almost everywhere, in a small way that's not detectable by most people. So geothermal reservoirs, or for that matter, any kind of underground activity, causes tiny earthquakes all the time. But they're very small magnitude, you know, below one and two, which the humans cannot detect. Induced seismicity increases that level up to, you know, threes and sometimes fours, which also are, you know, not prominently detectable. Um, so you can call them earthquakes if you like from the sort of layman's point of view, but they are they're kind of rumbling in the ground rather than buildings collapsing and falling down. Right. Well, as having lived in California for 30 plus years, I say if it's not over a five, I don't it doesn't register kind of on, on my personal scale. I don't notice it. So uh I'm I'm kind of there with you in terms of the threes and fours kind of go uh beneath my radar for sure um but i guess in terms of what we should be concerned about is the long-term effects i i know one of your students recently did a study fascinating study that i just read kind of the headlines of on subsurface microbial communities um and it showed how these communities are you know these microbial communities are affected by the things that we do underground. Uh, should we be very concerned, uh, so concerned that we don't do any more geothermal drilling or fracking, uh, or should we do it and do it cautiously? I think from that specific point of view, um, I don't think there's anything actually much to worry about. The, the temperatures that we are developing geothermal fields at are typically above 200 degrees centigrade. And at those kind of temperatures, there, there are, are no uh, remaining microbes living. They're all, they can't live at that temperature. So the study that we did was a low temperature uh, activity in, in a mine water, which was uh, more or less at ambient temperature. It was a fascinating study, you're quite right, that showed how the fractures uh, were created and how the water moved around based upon how the microbes differed from one place to another. But in an active geothermal reservoir producing electricity or direct heat, the microbes would uh, would not be living in that environment. So that's not an issue. So in terms of, say, you know, from a non-technical standpoint, if how many you know, say we really go full blast into geothermal and, and drill tons of wells, is there a possibility that we alter kind of the Earth's chemistry and structure beneath the beneath the surface that uh, is going to be adversely affected? Or is there just so much energy down there that uh, our pinpricks into the surface could never um, have much effect on that, uh, the heat sources? I think the latter. So, you know, this is a question that people sometimes ask, you know, are we going to cool the earth down and turn it into a stone cold, you know, ball? And the answer is no. So that the amount of energy that actually comes out 
of the earth all of the time, you know, this being emitted by the molten core of the planet, I mean, is is dozens of orders of magnitude greater than the total energy consumption of the human population of the planet. So the amount of geothermal energy that is there, you know, is is hugely, hugely greater than than what we're actually talking about. You know, that said, you know, locally we could change the conditions that um, lower the temperature or move the direction of water flow in the vicinity of the of the geothermal operation. I'm talking, you know, within a few kilometers that might have some consequence. For example, you may have a hot spring that dries up or another hot spring that starts up as a consequence of the fluids moving in a different way than they did before. Right. I was reading about um, an article about Japan and that they have a tremendous amount of geothermal potential, but they haven't really tapped into it very much because uh, the onsen owners, which are the spa owners of the hot springs, are always very concerned that, hey, if they drill a, a well, that it will affect their hot spring. So it's been kind of a political hot potato. Yes, it is. Absolutely. So J- Japan is a very particular case in that they have a tremendous geothermal resource, which is why there's so many hot springs there in the first place. Um, and yet they haven't gone very far with the geothermal development um, for exactly the reason you explained. It, it's something of a of a sort of a misfit of opinions, however, you know, the onsen owners themselves drill wells, so they are concerned, you know, losing their water. But the the direction that the Japanese geothermal community has taken has been more recently not to fight the onsen owners, but try and bring them on board. So what we see now in Japan is the so-called deployment of uh, microbineries. So these are very, very small, you know, 200, 300 kilowatt geothermal power plants that can use the waste heat from the onsen and provide electricity for a three, you know, 300 bedroom hotel. And the onsen owners kind of like that because they get free electricity and they're throwing the whole water away anyway. So they kind of coming along well, that's it's good to hear that they're finding a way to uh, tap that resource because it it does seem surprising given that Japan doesn't have a whole lot of uh, fossil fuel uh, resources that it would uh, throw that one to the side. But uh, politics makes for interesting decisions. So. Uh, you're listening to a climate change. This is Matt Matter, your host, and I am speaking to Dr. Roland Horn of Stanford, uh, and he is working at the Door School of St- Sustainability. So we'll be right back in just one minute to talk to Dr. Horn some more. listening to a climate change this is matt matter and we've got dr roland horn from stanford on the program and uh dr horn uh where do you see in california we've got a uh, six percent of our electricity needs being met by geothermal uh do you see that increasing over the in the coming years or is that uh, staying pretty stable 
One of the things that we are seeing worldwide is that uh, communities in which geothermal are being used are generally increasing their geothermal uh, production. And that's happening in California too. So in spite of the fact that California was very early on in the process, a lot of our resources in the, in the state were developed in the 70s and the 80s. It didn't stop at that point. So the development has kind of gone at a, a steady but slow pace. I think what we're now seeing, though, is a different environment than we had 30, 40 years ago, in which there is a strong pursuit of renewable energy. And the intermittent sources have sort of run out of, of steam in order, run out of momentum, I shouldn't say steam, <laughs> uh, in, order, in terms of how much faster they can increase, and they certainly will increase. But because of the fact that we have to have a certain amount of power on the grid, um, there's only a certain fraction of it can be intermittent. So we need a certain fraction of stable power. We need a certain fraction of storage. That's an important new characteristic of the grids now either you know pumped hydro or batteries or something else um, and therefore that has increased the interest in renewable energies of all kinds including geothermal and so we have you know continuing geothermal development here in California as well as in other places most other so, places so where do you see it uh, getting up to in terms of percentage of total California energy uh, production and what percentage would it need to be to kind of be the the uh, supply source that was consistent during days when it's not sunny or it's not windy? So I think you know, geothermal by itself will not be able to make that the, the, the cloudy, non-windy day ever, you know, not be a problem. It needs something in addition to geothermal because I don't think we can ever get up to a point where geothermal could be making up 50%, for example, of the grid. However, if we look at our neighboring state of Nevada, they have achieved 10%, and actually they're developing rather more aggressively than California is, largely due to a very receptive uh, legislature in Nevada. Nevada uh, government seems to state government seems to be a big believer in geothermal, but Nevada is a good test case because they have a a large number of relatively modest geothermal resources. Ge uh, the ones that we see in California are very large and very high quality resources. The fact that Nevada has gone so far ahead, taking advantage of relatively modest resources that simply shows the path that could be followed in many places, including California, of you know, developing lower quality, smaller resources in a more widespread way. So we have resources like that too in our state, um, not largely developed currently, but they remain on the plate for development in the future. What other states in, in the U.S. do you see developing geothermal? Do you have it in, say, Arkansas or Texas or Oklahoma, big energy producing states? 
Yes and no. So most of the current development, the current states that are producing geothermal electricity, at least, are in the West towards the so-called Pacific Ring of Fire. The uh, state of Hawaii also has uh, geothermal development. But we have resources in production in uh, California, Nevada, Idaho, Utah, uh, New Mexico. So we tend to be in the West. So under the current environment of conventional geothermal resources, we are sort of a Western-driven industry. Coming to Texas, you know, Arkansas, Oklahoma, et cetera, those places become attractive for geothermal developments when we can implement enhanced geothermal systems at a wider scale. So drilling deeper gives us those kind of temperatures almost everywhere, not quite everywhere. But once we get down to those kind of depths, then enhancing the permeability is almost a requirement. So once we have enhanced geothermal systems at commercial deployment, we can actually begin to move the geothermal boundary, if you like, towards the east. So uh, how far is that away from being commercially adopted, uh, the enhanced uh, production capabilities? Well, there are commercial enhanced geothermal systems in operation in the world, and some of them have been operating since you know, 2007, 2008, in, largely in Europe. So they're rather small. They have been uh, fostered by you know, worthwhile regulation, uh, feed-in tariffs, for example, to help stimulate that industry to grow. Um, there's been a total of around 40 enhanced geothermal systems built in the world, most of them research-based. However, uh, a number of them actually commercial. And there are, as I mentioned earlier, commercial companies now in the United States that are in the process of developing enhanced geothermal systems. Not, not on paper. They're drawing wells and they're intending to make money. So what are those companies? Uh, you want me to name them? Sure. Uh, the the one that's furthest out front is a company called Fervo. And How do you spell that? F-E-R-V-O. And they're drilling wells currently now in uh, in the Western States. So they're looking kind of in the places where the geothermal resources are not very good and enhance them as the title describes and to get more out of them by doing that. Interestingly enough, they've got new technology that they're applying to geothermal, newly applying to geothermal, making use of horizontal wells with multi-stage fractures, which is you know, widely deployed in shale gas and shale oil however, has not been deployed before in geothermal because it's a lot more challenging to achieve drilling those horizontal wells in very hard geothermal rocks, which is why people haven't done it before. Uh, but they have. They've now drilled their first well pair uh, in Nevada. And uh, achieved some success in doing it? I believe so. Okay. Well, it's uh, it's great to hear that uh, companies are are breaking new ground. Sorry for the pun, uh, and uh, helping you know bring new energy sources to to the fore that are 
have less carbon emissions than most everything else. So kudos to them and kudos to you for helping push the needle in that direction. So what's next? Uh, what what can the government do? What can industry do? What can we do as as consumers, as investors? You know, what should we be doing here? So one of the challenges that we have in moving this needle forward uh, to, to wider deployment is the geological uncertainty. I, I've mentioned that a couple of times already. You know, a big difference between geothermal energy and, for example, wind and solar is that you don't know what's under the ground, you know, under your feet. So if you're going to drill a well that may cost you five or $10 million um, without really being sure what's down there, or whether, I mean, even if uh, you know that it may not be permeable, it may not be suitable for for hydro shearing and stimulation, and you don't find that out until you've drilled it. So there's a large upfront capital cost in geothermal, which although when it's in production, geothermal is actually a very cheap energy source. To get there commercially actually requires you know, a lot of upfront capital investment. And that's that's discouraged people from going forward. You know, what I think it really needs is uh, investment at the scale of um, you know a billion dollars or so. That was what was was listed in the 2006 MIT report I referred to before, and actually try it multiple times. If you look at the shale oil and shale gas industry, it took them kind of 20 years and literally hundreds of thousands of wells to kind of get to the place they're in now where they're drilling cheaply. They're just kind of rubber stamping out uh, well pads across the country. To get that scale of deployment in geothermal is going to need some significant investment so people can get up that learning curve and get to the point of doing it on an industrial, you know, a widespread industrial scale. Well, it's certainly something that uh, seems like our government would be well served in putting some of the tens and hundreds of billions of dollars that are being allocated to address the climate issues that we are facing uh, and put that as seed capital because it can afford to take those kinds of risks where many investors don't want to be the first one in and uh, potentially lose uh, a few billion dollars, uh, this would be a good investment to get our entire country in a energy independent and also um, a clean energy source. You're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern, your host, and I am speaking with Dr. Roland Horn of Stanford, and we will be right back to uh, discuss uh, the future of geothermal. Listening to a climate change. This is Matt Mattern, and I've got uh, Dr. Roland Horn of Stanford, the Door School of Sustainability, on the show, and we've been talking about geothermal and uh, 
Doctor, why don't you talk to us a little bit about heat pumps? I know you're interested in it. Teach a bit about it. Um, I know I was thinking about getting a heat pump for my house, which, uh, and it's probably not one of the ones where you dig down into the earth to to get the um, the heat exchange, but I think it's more of an air exchange one. Uh, tell us a little bit about your thoughts there. Okay, so heat pumps is a is a wonderful technology to discuss. You know, a lot of people think that they don't quite know what a heat pump is, but everybody does because a refrigerator is a heat pump. It takes the heat which is inside the box and it puts it out in your kitchen. You know, it makes your food cold and it makes your kitchen warm. And the technology is applicable over a wider range of temperatures than that. And an air conditioner is another form of a heat pump. That is, in fact, an air source heat pump. It takes the heat from you know inside of your room and it puts it outside into the air. So heat pumps are wonderful devices in that they have tremendous efficiency. Heat pumps can be used either for, key, for cooling or for heating or both. So if we talk about using it for heating, that's the easiest one to understand. If you have an electric heater in your room, that is consuming one kilowatt of electricity, it produces one kilowatt of heat into your room to warm it up. A heat pump, however, you can use one kilowatt of electricity to drive the compressor of the heat pump, and it produces four or five kilowatts of heat. And that kind of seems like magic, but the extra four kilowatts of heat are extracted from the air outside and brought into your room. So it's free money, okay? You expend one kilowatt and you get five kilowatts in exchange. And that's, you know, a truly excellent technology. That's an, that's an air source heat pump. Uh, and although they work just fine, you also have to imagine the, you know, what we're asking the heat pump to do. We're asking it to take heat from the outside, which is really cold in the wintertime and bring it into the room. So it's it's five times efficiency, but we can do it even better, the ground source geothermal heat pump. The only difference really is that the place that it's taking the heat from is down under the ground, which is warmer in the wintertime than the air is. So they have heat even higher efficiency than air source heat pumps, uh, and therefore they're, they're, they're even much more effective. What's the uh, the bang per buck there? What what does one kilowatt do uh, in a ground source heat pump as compared to the four or five that you get from an air source heat pump? Well, air source heat pump, you know, in in a winter time is probably you know around three to four, whereas a ground source can get up around five or six. And places there are places in the world, Sweden being one, Switzerland being another where it's simply legislated, you know, you can't build a new building unless it's got heat pumps, ground source heat pumps in it. And they have tremendously wide deployment. Sweden remarkably has one of the highest deployments of uh, ground source heat pumps in the world. And it's not a country you would associate with volcanism or geothermal at all. And yet they have that, that tremendous advantage, energy advantage that they gain from that deployment. Well, I heard that uh, the war in the Ukraine uh, dramatically increased the use of heat pumps 
all across Europe that uh, because of the potential gas, natural gas shortage, that uh, people were switching out uh, natural gas systems to put in heat pumps. And uh, that seemed to make a, uh, a dent, at least in gas usage there. Yes, absolutely. Plus, it also reduces the carbon emissions, too. I mean, the only carbon emissions from a heat pump depend on the you know the energy, the electrical energy that you put into driving the motor. And if you're sourcing that from renewable energy, then you have a carbon-free heat source. And in terms of uh, in terms of kind of the environmental cost of building a uh, a heat pump, say if I don't use my my heater that often, am I really uh, doing the the world a, a service by changing my my gas heater to a heat pump if I'm if I'm not using it? What's the what's the line at which you become you know becomes uh, a smart move to to get a heat pump if uh, you're using it all the time? Obviously, it becomes more uh, a no brainer, but for those of us who may not use it, who live in Southern California and have temperate weather, say. Yeah, so you're, you're absolutely right. It depends on where you live. So if you're not a, a big consumer of heat in your residential spaces, then there's not too much to gain. However, uh, across the world, there are many places, you know, East Coast, for example, Minnesota, where they're using a tremendous amount of heat to stay warm in the winter. And they have a lot to gain by doing that. First of all, because air source heat pumps are, are not as efficient when it's actually freezing outside, minus 20. They, they do much better with ground source heat pumps. And secondly, all of those places that might be burning gas or worse than that, even fuel oil, then all of those carbon emissions then get avoided. Well, that's a tremendous potential. And uh, for for me, I mean, I look forward to the day when I have a solar array on my house and and many other people do as well, so that so that we are not relying upon uh, you know power sources that are fueled by coal or other uh, non-renewable sources, which would then make uh, the heat pump, uh, as you said, a very clean uh, way to generate uh, warmth and or or cold in the in a hot day too. That's quite right. Day. So even even in Southern California, if you have solar panels on your roof and and a and a heat pump, which can both cool and heat, you drive your air conditioning with your solar panels. Then you're not taking any fossil fueled electricity off the grid. You're getting you know four to one bang for your buck in your your, your energy or cools that you're getting from your air conditioner. So you may not need much heat, but if it's getting hot in the summertime, then you can get that advantage. Yeah, and certainly we we had a pretty hot summer uh, this last summer, and we had a pretty cool winter this winter. So, uh, it, you know, uh, there is some use for a heat pump, even for us uh, weather wimps down here in Southern California. So, uh where uh, where do you see the uh, the uh, world turning in terms of geothermal in the next uh, decades? Uh, do you see great uh, progress being made, and and where where do you see the next breakthroughs? 
So the so enhanced geothermal systems, as we talked about before, are moving ahead quite rapidly now. Um, the deployment of heat pumps is also increasing a lot. You know, heat pumps, more than a million uh, installations of heat pumps in the U.S., mostly on the East Coast, but that's expanding. And I think the overall kind of mix of geothermal into the portfolio that we have in the U.S. and in other places is being enhanced uh, significantly as we go forward. So backfilling countries that are kind of maxing out on wind and solar in the current state where storage is still quite expensive have a lot to gain by moving forward with geothermal. And we're seeing that happen in a lot of places. Yeah, I hadn't really thought of it before, but those uh, in-ground heat pumps are actually kind of a geothermal type of energy as well. And uh, I guess to me, it seems from a public policy standpoint that the government should be encouraging people to buy those because it makes uh, us more energy independent as well as uh, is environmentally friendly. So it's a it's such an easy win. Uh, we should be encouraging it at every level. We should, absolutely. But I don't, I'm not seeing uh, as much uh, adoption. And and I guess the other thing is the manufacturing of heat pumps. And I had read somewhere that there was some question as to shortages, given the, the tremendous amount of buying that was being done in Europe post, uh, you know, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, are there any kind of supply chain issues here in the U.S. about uh, purchasing heat pumps? I, I actually don't know. That is likely to be driven by the same forces. But one of the things that we're lacking a little bit in the United States at the moment is plumbers. Okay, so somebody has to install those heat pumps, and it has to be someone who has the expertise and the experience. And there are plenty of people like that already in the U.S., but not as many as know how to install a gas furnace. So we have to move the needle towards a you know a fleet of plumbers who are familiar and experienced in installing ground source heat pumps, and end up preferring you know, to do that compared to installing gas furnaces. Well, it's always kind of interesting and intriguing how uh, little things make uh, big changes, and and the need for plumbers, uh, though an ancient. Uh, profession is is something that we need in our modern world, and uh, I think it was said that plumbers probably uh, saved more uh, human lives than doctors uh, through just better sanitation. So uh, plumbers may save us through environmental, uh, you know, sanitation as well, uh, having cleaner power sources. So look at that, we've come full circle. Well, uh, you've been listening to A Climate Change. Uh, my guest, Dr. Rowan Horn of Stanford, uh, teaches at the Door School of St- Sustainability. Thank you for being on the show. It's been great having you, and i uh, love to stay in touch, uh, follow your research as you go forward. Thank you. Tune in to A Climate Change on our website. Uh, you can find it at www.climatechange.com or on our social channels. Thanks for listening.